Welcome to the Who, What, Why podcast. I'm your host, Jeff Shackman. It's been a while since the British monarchy was so front and center in our consciousness. The Crown on Netflix and Meghan and Harry have pulled back the curtain on the sometimes romantic notion of royalty. But more importantly, it's also given us a look into what's been called the firm or the institution, the British monarchy and its wider political economies of wealth and power. Because behind the scenes is simply a corporation engaged in capital accumulation, profit extraction, labor relations, national and international finance arrangements, and a network of legal status, all of which converge with and impact on contemporary Britain. Prince Philip, the husband of the Queen and the Duke of Edinburgh, is quoted as saying back in 1969 that it's a misconception to imagine that the monarchy exists in the interests of the monarch. It doesn't, he said. It exists in the interests of the people. In fact, history tells us that nothing could be further from the truth. The monarchy is more precisely in the words of the late Christopher Hitchens, what you get when you found a political system on the family values of Henry VIII. To bring all of this in perspective, I'm joined by the Right Honorable Norman Baker. Norman Baker was a member of Parliament from 1997 to 2015 and established a reputation as one of the most persistent parliamentary interrogators in the modern House of Commons. He was Under Secretary of State for Transport, Minister of State for Crime Prevention at the Home Office. He is the author of the acclaimed The Strange Death of David Kelly, the political memoir Against the Grain, and his most recent book about the British monarchy entitled, And What Do You Do? What the Royal Family Don't Want You to Know? In his spare time, he's also an established singer-songwriter and has released three albums. And it is my pleasure to welcome the Right Honorable Norman Baker to the Who, What, Why podcast. Norman, thanks so much for joining us. I'm very good to be here, Jeff, from uh, far away in distant London. Well, it is great to have you here. Thank you so much for doing this. First and foremost, when we think of the monarchy, one of the things that becomes crystal clear in all this talk about the firm and the institution kind of brings this into bold relief, that this is a business, this is a corporation. Talk about that first. It is the firm, um, and that's what Harry and Meghan called it in their recent uh, interview with Oprah Winfrey, quite rightly. And if you look at the wealth that's been accumulated over the years, you have to ask yourself how it is that um, the Queen is one of the richest people in the country, uh, and not far behind is Prince Charles, and how it was that Prince Philip was born in, I think, a fruit basket, and uh, without doing very much, it ended up as a multimillionaire. And the answer, of course, is not that they won the lottery, not that they found uh, a whole lot of money lying on the pavement. Uh, no, the answer is that uh, they have accumulated money as a consequence of largesse from the British public, and alternatively, uh, from uh, enabling their interest to be performed by the government of the day, by persuading the government of the day to frame legislation in their interests. That's why they're worth so much money. Now, I just have to say that um, in this day and age, there is no room really for an imperialist monarchy. If you look at the monarchies which exist in the Benelux countries, uh, in the Scandinavian countries, they have moved with the times. They are monarchies of the present day. Uh, when a king and queen take up office uh, in those countries, they take an oath of allegiance to the constitution. In this country, we have to take an oath of allegiance to the unelected person who is head of state. Uh, We are the only country I know of where the national anthem relates to one person, namely God Save the Queen. And really, uh, it's inappropriate of a national anthem which requires you to be both religious and to 
respect monarchy as a concept. The national anthem should be a unifying uh, piece of music, but it isn't in this particular case. So we have to move on. The other imperial monarchies have gone. The Russian Tsar, the Austro-Hungarian Empire, the German Emperor, they've all, the French Emperor, they've all gone. But we're left with this imperial monarchy, which is vast, and which occupies a huge number of buildings, which takes a great deal of public money. And for what? You mentioned my book, uh, Jeff. I should just say, on the cover, it's a picture of Buckingham Palace. There are 44 of them on the balcony. What are they all doing? Why do we need these people? Why are we paying for them? To what extent does the accumulation of wealth and the kind of corporate nature of the monarchy, to what extent does that go back to colonial roots, to colonialism? Well, it goes back to, I wouldn't quite say colonialism, I'd say it goes back to imperialism, um, to the idea that the, the king and queen are supreme, and okay, they may be technical constitutional monarchs, but actually, interestingly, they still, theoretically at least, have the same power which they did have centuries ago. Uh, in theory, uh, the Queen could veto legislation. I mean, it'd be very unwise for her to do so, but she has that power. And when the members of the armed forces, our, our Air Force, our Navy, uh, our Army, uh, enlist, they take an oath of allegiance not to the country, but to the Mullican person. Now, that may sound rather abstract and not important, but just think back what happened in the late 1930s. We had Edward VIII on the throne. Edward VIII was effectively a Nazi. He was certainly a deep Nazi sympathiser and no friend of democracy. Uh, unfortunately, he was, he was made to abdicate before the World War started. But suppose he'd been on the throne in 1941. There was a movement in the UK to try to do a deal with Hitler, particularly from the aristocracy. The deal would have been to leave the British Empire alone and let the Nazis roam wild towards the East and towards the Slavic uh, nations. Now, fortunately, Churchill was here. That didn't happen. But suppose Edward VIII on the throne had said to all those people in the armed forces who'd signed allegiance to him personally, lay down your weapons in the interest of the country, what would have happened? You know, we can't have that situation arising. This power needs to be curtailed, returned to the democratic parliament we have, and that's where it should reside, not with the monarch. Do you know, I find it offensive when I was elected as a member of parliament in 1997. I had won my seat thanks to the democratic mandate in my own constituency. I fought hard for that, and I won it. And why should I, in order to take my seat in the House of Commons and discharge my duties in a democracy on behalf of my constituents, why should I have to take an oath of allegiance to an unelected person before I can take my seat? And indeed be fined if I speak in the House of Commons without having taken that oath. Suppose an entire political party was elected with a majority in the House of Commons on the basis of wanting to abolish the monarchy. If that happened, they would all have to take an oath of allegiance to the Queen in order to take their seats, in order to abolish her. What a nonsense that is. We need to move on. And one of the problems with the royal family, um, which may not be their fault, but it's a consequence of it, is it ties Britain to the past. We need to look forward, not back. And there's an element of the population here that takes comfort in the monarchy, that takes comfort in a kind of grand uh, illusion that Britain is still sitting down at the world table with... Uh, Churchill and Stalin and Roosevelt, as it did in, at Yalta in the Second World War, that was still a great power. We're not. We're a very nice country, but we're not a great power anymore. And the royal family helps to maintain the illusion we are. We need to move on. It's in the interest of this country we do move on, and the royal family is not to to that. 
What about the argument that some have made, and this relates to what the royal family costs the country, the argument that's made that it is a kind of brand, that it brings in tourism, that it brings in a lot of dollars into the country? (laughs) Brings in tourism. I don't think it's uh, really appropriate to uh, base a country's constitutional arrangements on what tourists might like. Um, That's hardly a very constitutional argument to put forward. Um, And in any case, let's take the tourism argument at its face value. I wonder if your um, listeners know how many um, people visit each particular royal palace in Europe and what the most popular royal palace is. Well, I'll tell you, the one that gets the most visitors is the Palace of Versailles. And the French abolished our monarchy in 1848. So I think we could probably have Buckingham Palace open more for tourists uh, if the Queen and her family were not in residence. So, yes, there's a brand, but it's not necessarily a helpful brand. Okay, it means that people abroad have heard of Britain and they see the royal family, but that's a misleading impression of what Britain is these days. You know, I think the Britain that we should be advertising is one that is doing really well in the creative arts, that does really, that produced the Beatles, for example, that uh, produced the uh, World Wide Web, thanks to Tim Berners-Lee, the technology base which we've got in this country, the creativity, the ingenuity, that's what we should be pushing, not some past centuries imperial image, you know, with state coaches and everything else. I mean, that's that's nothing to do with where Britain should be. And it's not helpful to present that image to the world. Why is it that journalism, the tabloids and, and the mainstream press in Britain has not been more aggressive in uncovering some of these aspects of the royal family? Well, the press is quite juvenile in some ways, I'm afraid. The, the press um, concentrates on trivia. So we learn that Kate's fallen out with Meghan or Meghan's fallen out with Kate or that um, Kate dropped an umbrella and went to the car and had to pick it up in shock horror. Uh, she wasn't supposed to pick it up. Someone else should have picked it up for her. You know, all this stuff is just rubbish. It's all just trivia. But that's what the papers concentrate on. And there is a kind of unwritten deal between the royal family and the, and the media, as a matter of fact, which is that if the royal family cooperates and gives the media what they want, pictures of the kids uh, and so on, then the media tend to leave them alone. Um, if they want to go for them, uh, they don't go for them because you get access to the royal family to give some good stories. That's the that's the deal which exists. So we have lots of trivia about the royal family in the paper. Some of it quite intrusive, as a matter of fact, in terms of their privacy, which I don't agree with. But the big issues, the finance, the influence of the royal family and how the country's run, that's passed by. And that's one of the reasons I wrote my book, is to, to turn a light on this and say to people, this is what's actually at stake here. I'm not interested, really, whether... Um, Kate and Meghan have fallen out, and far more interested in the fact that the royal families become millionaires, billionaires at our expense. I want to come back to this idea of money and how much money the firm has accumulated, how it's accumulated that wealth, and why it's had a direct cost to the country. Okay, well, I'm going to give you and your listeners a bit of a history lesson, if I may, Jeff, because I think it's necessary. After 1760, uh, the king, as it then was, George II, um, had responsibility for all public spending. I mean, he funded the army, the civil service, everything that had to be funded. Um, And uh, obviously that became very onerous on him. He had lands which brought in money, but it wasn't quite enough. And obviously as as the state got larger, these bills for essential elements of the state became quite unwieldy. So in 1760, a deal was reached whereby most of the royal lands were handed to the government, in other words, to the public, and in return for that, uh, the king was given a, a, a stipend, a, an annual sum of money called a civil list, in order to meet his expenditure. Now, that system 
existed for 250 years until 2011. It wasn't always run properly in Victorian times, for example. Um, so in 1760, the king had no money. Let's be quite clear about that. Uh, what happened then afterwards was that Victoria, in Victorian times, Prince Albert, Victoria's husband, went to the government and said, the civil list isn't enough. We're not being able to, to meet our bills and discharging our duty to the nation. Um, so Parliament was persuaded to increase the civil list quite significantly. Well, you know, that was a lie. It was enough. What did they do with the extra money? They went and bought a lot of property. So these so-called private properties, which the Queen owns, like Sandringham or Balmoral, they were bought from public money on, on a false prospectus, on the prospectus that uh, they, they were short of money, couldn't discharge their duties. They could. They just used the extra money Parliament gave them for their own personal benefit. So, And that's typical of how they've accumulated money over the years, persuading politicians to give them more money, embarrassing them by saying, you know, we're going to become broke soon if you don't give us more money. Prince Philip tried that. You mentioned what he said in 69. In 69, he was saying, you know, we'll have to sell a couple of polo ponies. I mean, what absolute rubbish. But they've used this tactic over the years to get more and more money from the public purse. So that's how they've accumulated a great deal of money. And then they managed to twist the taxation arrangements to suit themselves. So from 1952 to 1993, the Queen paid no income tax on her private money of private investments, no income tax. And then between 52 and 93, the Queen was exempt from paying tax on investment income. Now, we have a calculation from one of our tabloids, I think it was the Daily Mail around the time, that that exemption alone, just the taxation exemption on investment income, had given the Queen a windfall of £800 million. £800 million that should have been used to provide hospitals and schools and roads and railways for our country, instead was given to one of the richest people in the country. And then there's death duties. When people die, they are subject to an assessment for death duties, except they're not in the royal family. And when the Queen Mother died, no death duties were paid. And that was a loss to the Treasury of an estimated £25 million. £25 million given to the Queen, who's already one of the richest people in the country, that should have gone to us. There are all sorts of medieval, arch archaic arrangements here. For example, the Queen still has control of what's called the Duchy of Lancaster as part of the UK. That wasn't transferred in 1716 because it was worth nothing in 1716 and nobody thought about it. But it's worth a great deal now. And the archaic arrangements which exist there are that if somebody in the Duchy of Lancaster area dies without a will, their estate goes to the Queen. To the Queen, not to the taxpayer, to the Queen. Now, these are these are ridiculous arrangements which, which exist and should have been abolished years ago. But it's not simply that. We've got favourable taxation arrangements for Prince Charles, the Duchy of Cornwall, which also should be in public hands, and he's grasped hold of it, saying it belongs to a private estate. He calls it a private estate. Well, you know, private estates in the, in the UK pay something called corporation tax on their profits, except to... The Duchy of Cornwall doesn't. So on the one hand, it's private, and we can't find out about it, and he's exempted himself from freedom of information. On the other hand, it's public and doesn't pay corporation tax. So the argument is private when it suits them, and the argument is public when it suits them. And all these wheezes, I've just given you a few, all these wheezes mean they've accumulated vast amounts of money at public expense over the years. It's disgraceful. And in 2011, just to finish the history of our major, in 2011, the royal family got what they've been arguing for for a very long time. 
Prince Charles had been arguing for years. Prince Charles likes to accumulate public money for himself. He argued for a long time that the money from the Crown Estates, these are the, these are the lands that were given to the public in 1760 in return for an annual civil list, that the Crown Estates really ought to belong to the royal family because they were Crown Estates. The word Crown was what he majored on. Of course, he argued that they should come back to the, to the royal family. He wasn't arguing, of course, that the royal family should pick up the bill for the army and the civil service and all the things they'd lost in 1760. Oh, no, he wanted a one-way traffic of all the benefits and none of the disbenefits. So in 2011, the civil list was abolished and replaced by a linkage, quite improper, a linkage between what the royal family got and the profits of the Crown Estate. And the consequence of that is this. In 2011, the royal family received 7.9 million um, from the civil list. By 2019, that figure had gone up to 82.3 million, a more than tenfold increase at a time of austerity in this country. So they are coining it in. They are conning it in at um, public expense, coining and conning the public at large in this country. So that's a disgrace. What do we not know about the finances of the royal family? How much is public, and certainly a great deal is, but how much is hidden away behind secrecy? What do we not know about what's going on with the royal family finances? Well, to be honest with you, most people don't know what I've just been telling you for the last 10 minutes. Um, that's not generally known. What the royal family says is that, oh, we're a very good value. We're the equivalent of a cost of a postage stamp or something each year or a cup of tea or some other nonsense. Um, you know, that that is, is a very narrow assessment of taking one or two figures and, and extrapolating from that. It doesn't take into account all the things I've been talking about, the exemptions from tax, uh, the, the dealing behind the scenes, uh, the, the money that comes from uh, people who are intestate when they die. None of that's included. And nor is the security, by the way. The security for the royal family comes to about £200 million a year, at least it's estimate. Enormous amount of money. Now, of course, nobody wants the royal family to be unsafe, but you know, do we need 24-hour protection for members of the royal family you've never heard of? I mean, who is Princess Alexandra? Anyone know who she is? Well, she gets royal protection. Why do these people get royal protection? This is not what happens in, in Norway or Sweden or Holland or Belgium. It doesn't happen that way. But over here, they want it. It's kind of status symbol, so we pay for it through the public purse. So a great deal about the royal finances is not known. Instead, they trot out this lie each year about how much they cost, and it's cost them a postage stamp or something each. And that becomes the, the figure that's put in the papers because they won't challenge it. Most of them won't challenge it. I'll just give you one example of the egregious nature of how the roles are. They are so money grasping. Here's an example. Um, Buckingham Palace was down to be refurbished. It did a bit of a state, to be honest with you. And I think the cost quoted about 2009 to do some necessary repairs was about £10 million. And when we got a new prime minister in 2016 uh, with Theresa May, and a new chancellor, Philip Hammond, then the palace tried it on. They went to see them and said, oh, we need to repair Buckingham Palace, and it's going to cost £359 million. £359 million. So whatever that is, about $500 million. And the prime minister said, yes, OK, we'll pay for that. So suddenly this thing has gone up 35 times in cost, and we paid a whole lot. And now presently going on is this gold-plated, all bells and whistles refurbishment to Buckingham Palace, uh, is going on at this particular point. And here's the rub of it. <laughs> the Buckingham Palace is open to tourists to bring in some cash. Um, they get charged quite a lot to go around Buckingham Palace in the summer months. And guess what? We pay, we, the taxpayer, pay for the refurbishment, but the Queen keeps the money for the tickets that she sells. Nice, nice work if you can get it, isn't it? <laughs>
<laughs> if, in fact, there was a desire or there was a government that wanted to address this and do something about some of the things you're talking about, how ingrained is the monarchy? How difficult would it be to begin to roll back any of this? Well, the politicians, by and large, um, are, are unwilling to take the matter on. Uh, for them, a lot, of, a lot of politicians share my view about this and my concerns, but they don't necessarily want to push it. They don't see it as the first item on the agenda. It's always number 93 on the agenda, so it never gets dealt with. And they, it's regarded as a potentially risky and a potential vote loser. So it never gets dealt with. Uh, and uh, I've got a chapter in my book called Week at the Knees, which, which sets out in uh, despairing detail how politicians have given in time and time again to their own family. Uh, we never quite have a majority or anything like a majority of politicians willing to do anything about it. But, you know, at any one time, even when the monarchy is most popular, about 25% of the population in this country wants a republic, even when the monarchy is sitting high in the opinion polls. Well, 25% of the House of Commons is 25% of 650 MPs, whatever that is, what's that? 325, 160 MPs. You'll never find more than 10 MPs at any one time who will come out publicly and say they want the monarchy either abolished or even reformed. Uh, they won't say so. But they'd say it privately, but they won't say it publicly. I, I'm one of the few who ever did that. How does this play out in the broader Commonwealth? Well, I mean, the Queen is well-respected. Let me say this, first of all. The Queen, as an individual, uh, is well-respected in this country and well-respected across the world. And she seems to have done a decent job. She seems to have been diligent and given public service. She hasn't really made very many mistakes in public, if any, hardly, uh, which is quite an achievement over her very long reign. So um, I think people are reluctant to say too much publicly about the monarchy while she is on the throne. I think the situation will change dramatically, actually, when she goes, and we have a change at the top. And, of course, the hereditary principle means that um, you don't get to, to choose who's your head of state. Um, you, you, you get whoever, whoever's next in line, whether they're any good or not. So you can have someone diligent like Elizabeth II at the moment, or someone who's a basic Nazi like Edward VIII. I mean, it just whoever comes up with the rations, really, you get. So the Commonwealth, you asked about the Commonwealth. The Commonwealth doesn't want to upset the Queen, I think, who's been very loyal to the Commonwealth. But that will change, I think, when uh, she goes and Prince Charles takes over. I think, for example, that Australia will become a republic. I mean, I have to, I have to ask myself, why is a country the other side of the world, uh, which is a fully functioning independent country, why has it still got this kind of head of state back, you know, from colonial days in the UK? It doesn't make any sense to me. So I think Australia needs to, um, and the other countries too, frankly, should find their own head of state rather than relying on ours. How do you think attitudes will change specifically once Charles moves up to the throne? Oh, I think a lot of the things I'm saying will, and people are mumbling, uh, will now be said, uh, will then be said in 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 in, uh, in more vocal ways. Um, there is, I think, unhappiness with um, the royal family, and, and Harry and Meghan, by the way, are uh, are encapsulating some of that concern. Uh, the royal family is ultra conservative, uh, small c, and and therefore when Meghan says there are issues about race, I mean, frankly, that that uh, sounds credible to many people. So I think when Prince Charles takes over, he hasn't got the same affection um, from the public as the Queen has. He upset many, many people the way he dealt with Diana, which was seen to be duplicitous and unfair on Diana. Um, you know, there were three people in this marriage, she famously said, and there were. Um, so that's in the British memory, that. Uh, and people don't like that about him. They don't like the fact that he's hypocritical on climate change. And he goes around the world 
lecturing people on, on the need to cut carbon, but does so in private jets, taking vast numbers of servants with them and everywhere he goes. They don't like the fact that um, he's money grabbing in the Duchy of Cornwall and seems to be money grabbing. They don't like the fact he seems to be a bit, in many people's eyes, a bit weird in terms of an attitude towards architecture or, or uh, other such matters. So I don't think Charles will command the same respect or devotion almost that the Queen does. Um, so the royal family, I think, will have a very difficult and challenging time when he takes over. And, you know, my advice to him, not that he wants advice from me, but my advice to him is, you've got to reform the royal family pretty damn quick uh, because the tree that doesn't bend will surely break. Is there any sense that the royal, that, that he would do that, that he would reform the royal family? Well, I think there is a sense that he wants to slim it down. Um, he wants to slim it down by, by cutting out his brothers um, and having a much narrower base as the Scandinavian monarchy and the Benelux countries have. So in that sense, I think he does recognize a need to, to change. But what he doesn't recognize is the need for him to change himself or his attitudes. He's very willing to reform other people, but not reform himself. Talk a little bit about the younger members of the royal family. Are they popular, and is there a generational shift that is ahead as far as the royal family is concerned? Well, you know, the, there aren't many members of the royal family who are deemed to be younger. I mean, uh, all the Queen's children are over 50, for example. I mean, presumably you're talking about William and Kate and Harry and Meghan. Well, Harry and Meghan have gone off, taken their boat with them and gone off to California, so they don't really count anymore. So basically you're talking about William and Kate. And, well, I, I think people don't mind them very much. I think William's a bit dull, seems a bit dull. Uh, and Kate's rather state, which is what female women members of the royal family are encouraged to be. Uh, I don't think they excite people. I mean, Harry and Meghan did excite people. I mean, they were an opportunity for the royal family to move forward into the 21st century, or even move into the 20th century, but the 19th. Um, there was an opportunity there to embrace a woman of colour, to embrace um, Harry, who was... Um, you know, a different sort of person from um, from his brother and from his uh, other relatives in the royal family. Uh, and they could have actually moved forward on that basis, but they didn't. And the thing is, because it's an ultra-conservative institution, people who come along with new ideas uh, and, and, a, and a breath of fresh air are not welcomed. They are resisted. Look at Harry's mother. It just happened before. When Diana came along, she had her own mind, an intelligent woman. She wanted to campaign against landmines, and she was the first royal to hold someone's hand who was su su suffering from AIDS. I mean, she was quite radical, but and very, very popular as a consequence. And the royal should have concluded from that that this is the way to gain popularity, to move forward. Instead, she was squeezed out, and so was Meghan, because what the royal family dislikes amongst, above everything else, is an intelligent woman who should be, in their view, a simpering psychic to her husband, rather than someone with their own brain who can make her own policies up and, and have an own opinion about matters. So, I mean, I think the, the, the dislike of Meghan and the royal family was not actually largely based on race. I think it was based on the fact that she was a woman of intelligence and B, based on class rather than race. And yet this in a country that has a queen. Yes, I know it has a queen, but I mean, that's almost, a, in, a, in a sense, an accident of history. And that's been, a, that's been assimilated. But, I mean, you know, we had Mrs. Thatcher uh, as prime minister, and she was extremely right-wing. So I don't think it necessarily follows that because the woman at the top is a woman, that uh, women therefore benefit. I don't think that happens at all. Women didn't benefit under Mrs. Thatcher when she was prime minister. 
Tell us a little bit about the people behind the scenes, thousands of people literally that work for the firm and a hierarchy within that organization like a corporation. Who are those hidden people and how much power do they have? Well, I mean, the Queen's got uh, quite a large entourage. Uh, I think from memory about a thousand employees, uh, of whom, by the way, very few are mixed race or, or black at all. Um, those employees uh, range from people who are deeply underpaid servants, valets and, and people like that, to squeeze a toothpaste onto Prince Charles's toothbrush in the morning, which is what they do, um, to set out their clothes for them, to, um, to bring them papers when they've been ironed in the morning for, the, for them to read, that sort of menial task which has been there for centuries. On the other hand, there are people who are busy... Um, scrutinising legislation, working out what it means for the royal family, telling government ministers that they object to particular bits of it, which will adversely affect the private interests of the Queen and Prince Charles. Uh, that sort of thing goes on. There's a liaison, of course, quite properly, between the palace and uh, the government about overseas visits and so on. So there are a lot of people there employed uh, by, by the Queen and uh, her, her family, many of whom, frankly, should not be there because they are con they're undertaking menial tasks that, frankly, the royal family should undertake for themselves. Are there individuals with real power behind the scenes? Well, yes, I mean, absolutely. People who work in the uh, Queen's private secretary, people like that, the Lord Chamberlain, these people have real power, and they communicate uh, the wishes of the royal family to the government. In fact, sometimes uh, they're more um, powerful, or, or seem to be more powerful, and more pro-monarchy more, more pro than the, the monarchy itself sometimes. So, of course, they're all completely unaccountable. We don't know who they are. Well, I perhaps do, and some others do, but... They don't make themselves very well known to the public at large. They are hidden figures behind the scenes. And then there are all the ludicrous people, you know. I've forgotten all the titles that they all are in my book, but, you know, the Queen's musicians and, uh, and, and people, people who deal with swans on the river and all that sort of stuff. I mean, a whole lot of garbage, really, from, from, from centuries ago is still there. You know, if someone tells me that someone called Keeper of the Belfry, I tend to believe them because all these sort of people still exist. So silver sword in waiting, you know, gold stick in waiting, all these people, you know, they're still there. You've written about the actual power that the monarchy could have or could exercise and about this idea of Queen's consent. Talk about that. Yes, I mean, the, the Queen theoretically has absolute power and, um, of course, she can be prosecuted. So um, when she was um, caught driving without a seatbelt which is an offence in this country, no one could prosecute her. And indeed, she could commit murder and no one could prosecute her because it's Regina, meaning the Queen, Regina versus something. That's every court case. You can't have Regina versus Regina. So they, they, they don't exercise political power in the sense of, of, of changing, um, for example, where the government's got um, uh, an education bill. They don't kind of change those sorts of things at all in, in, the, in, in government. They don't have that sort of power. Um, what they do have power to do uh, is to uh, protect themselves and enrich themselves. And that's the power they use for their own benefit behind the scenes. So Queen's consent uh, is, is, a, is a, a concept going back centuries, which is still there, still exists. And it has two functions, really. One is that um, for no very good reason, any, any legislation which re is, requires the Queen to sign off is presented to the Queen in, in advance. And... Um, uh, the government will recommend whether or not Queen's consent should be given. Well, obviously, for government bills, it recommends it should be given. So that's uh, a kind of un irrelevant and unnecessary step that's taken. It also can um, suggest to the Queen that private members' bills by opposition members shouldn't be given Queen's consent. They can stop them actually progressing in the Commons. 
So the government can hide behind the Queen and get her to refuse Queen's consent um, uh, in order to stop a, an, an embarrassing bill from an opposition member. There was a bill about Iraq in about 1998, where the government of the day uh, uh, used the Queen to refuse permission for the matter to be debated in the House of Commons. Quite outrageous. However, the particularly egregious use of Queen's consent comes in another way, which is the Queen's consent is deemed to be necessary for matters which affect the private uh, possessions and interests of the Queen, the private possessions. So just think about that for a second. That here's an individual who may be losing out from piece of government legislation. They have to be consulted upon it, and then they can effectively stop that applying to them. I remember sitting in, 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 as an MP on the uh, bill for the animal welfare uh, bill, which came out in about 2005, 2006, and uh, a good piece of legislation. And one of the parts of the legislation said that inspectors from the RSPCA, that's the animal charity that looks after animals uh, and can take prosecutions, inspectors from the RSPCA would henceforth be allowed to enter private land if they suspected that animal abuse was taking place. Very good provision in my view. Except that the royal family, the Queen, said, oh no, I don't want this applying to my private estates in Sandringham and Balmoral. Estates, of course, which I explained earlier, had been bought with public money. I don't want them in my private estates. So the law was amended to exclude her private lands from the RSPCA. I mean, that's just an abuse of power. Beyond the potential for abuse of power, what is your sense of the degree of corruption that goes on with respect to all of this wealth that the firm has? Well, that's what it depends how you define corruption. If, if um, corruption means are they taking backhanders, um, no, I don't know, taking backhanders. Though, though I might say in Prince Andrew's case, there are some very interesting um, uh, financial exchanges which have yet to be explained, so let's put it that way. Um, I, don't, I don't think they do that. What they do do is they persuade the government to take the, the, the course of action which benefits them. Um, whether you call that corruption, I don't know. Given what's gone on with Prince Andrew and, and the more recent developments with Meghan and Harry, is the royal family under siege? Is this going to force them in some way to address some of these issues you've been talking about? Well, as I say, I think, I think that nothing wants to happen while the Queen's on the throne because nobody wants to upset the Queen particularly uh, as, an, as an individual rather than the monarchy. The, the Queen is, in a sense, separate from the monarchy. Um, so people want to not rock the boat while she's 94, 95 in April. And um, she's been seen to have done a good job, by and large. So nobody wants to really upset her. So quite a lot is going to be mumbled behind the scenes for the time being. But I think it may all change when Charles comes to the throne. Uh, that's a difficult and challenging time for the monarchy. He has to do something interesting and reformist to get it right. If he doesn't, he'll leave himself, I think, wide open. And what could happen if he doesn't do that? If, if, if he gets it badly wrong, then, the, the, then the, there'll be more clamour for either amendments of the royal family um, and their power, or ultimately uh, the number of people who want to see a republic will go up. No, I don't think there'll be a republic uh, very shortly, but I do think that um, um, there'll be a lot more dissatisfaction expressed and there'll be pressure on MPs to rein in some of these excesses. For example, the Queen's consent you talked about, that could be abolished tomorrow by a simple vote in the House of Commons and a vote in the House of Lords. It's all that it requires. It doesn't require anything else. It's a convention, like so much in this country. We have, as you know, unlike America, which I admire in this regard, you've got quite a wonderful constitution in most regards, anyway. Um, and we've got an unwritten constitution. Well, we have an unwritten constitution that's not worth the paper it's not written on. 
in many regards. Um, so, but some of these conventions could be undone like that overnight. And I think if Charles doesn't handle himself well, then he may find some of these conventions being undone. The Right Honorable Norman Baker, his most recent book is, And What Do You Do? What the Royal Family Don't Want You to Know? I thank you so much for spending time with us today on the Who, What, Why podcast. You're welcome, and I hope your uh, American listeners in particular will uh, have an opportunity to look at my book, which I'm happy to say is now out in the States. Uh, available in all good bookshops and probably some not very good bookshops as well. <laughs> thank you so much. And thank you for listening and for joining us here on Who, What, Why. I hope you join us next week for another Radio Who, What, Why podcast. I'm Jeff Sheckman. If you like this podcast, please feel free to share and help others find it by rating and reviewing it on iTunes. You can also support this podcast and all the work we do by going to whowhatwhy.org forward slash donate.